What would things look like if Satan really took control of our city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took control over Philadelphia, all the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. I imagine being in a place where Christ is not preached, it goes a little something like this. You gather together in a community group or in a small group Bible study, and you get out your Bibles excited and ready to dig into the Word. But maybe five or ten minutes into the conversation, the statement is made, hey, today, let's just put our Bibles aside and talk. Let's just chat. Let's have conversation. Let's hear what's going on in your life. And although there may be call times for that, to get to know someone or to hear what's going on in somebody's life, all of a sudden you notice it becomes a routine. That every Sunday when you gather together, it becomes rare that you actually open up the Bible, continue to read in the Bible, go back to the Bible, and walk away saying, I've learned more about the Bible today. Maybe it's when we gather together in a big group or small group and we say, hey, will you pray for me? This is what's going on. And another one comes in and says, will you pray for me? I have this going on with my family. And then another one speaks up and says, this is what's happening to me in work. And, and another one says, I have an unspoken, unspoken, but will you just pray for me? Uh, prayer. So yeah, I'll pray for you. And then we, we walk away from that, neglecting to pray. But we worry for them. We're concerned for them. We may share the request with other people, but we neglect to go to Christ on their behalf. Maybe it's that we gather in song and that we sing beautiful songs, songs that get us emotionally. They stir us. They give us tears. It brings that tingle up our spine, up and down the spine. We say, man, what a great song, but we have no idea what the words mean. It's all kind of things about how we want to do things for God, how we'd like to do things for God, but what's missing is Christ. Maybe that's what it looks like. Or that for children's events and student events, that what drives those ministries and college ministry would be to just show up and play games, hang out, eat some food, maybe engage the culture, but never learn of Christ, never speak of Christ. So if Satan were to take control of this area, if he were to have an impact among us, it would be that we gather together, that we're kind to one another, but we neglect to speak of Christ. And this is what we see in the book of Galatians. This is what's going on after Paul has just recently left. He receives the news that now they have turned from Christ. Still a, a polite religion, probably being kind to each other, probably looks really good on the surface and from the outside looking in. But as you dig and probe deeper, you realize... There's no Christ being preached. And so today, we are acknowledging that there is only one gospel. 
Only one gospel. So three points that we'll look at under today's heading and message. One, remain firmly rooted in God's grace. Number two, we'll see that we are to reject any teaching that distorts the works of Christ. And three, we are to regard the divinely inspired word above all other words. So follow along with me in our first point. Remain firmly rooted in God's grace. We return to verse six. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This word, astonished, thalmazo, means to marvel. It means to wonder. As if Paul hears this news and his mouth drops and he cannot believe what he is hearing. He is absolutely astonished. In our human relationships, we are bound to disappoint one another at some point in time. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me. It's bound to happen. In this passage here that we read, Paul is disappointed. He is astonished. But I don't believe Paul is angry. I don't believe Paul is mad at the church. I believe he cares deeply for them. And I believe he is immediate in his response to them. But I don't think he's doing it out of anger. I think he's angry. I think he has a righteous anger towards the Judaizers who are stirring them up, but not towards the local church. But notice something, even in saying that, that Paul doesn't begin this letter, or in the beginning of this letter, uh, issue a traditional thanksgiving. I thank my God for remembering you. I'm, I'm thankful for you. Why doesn't he offer this traditional thanksgiving in the beginning? One, because Paul is not thankful. He is not thankful to receive the news from these early churches that have just been started, who not long ago were grateful to receive the gospel and are now turning their backs to their only hope for salvation. He's not thankful for that, so there's no thanksgiving. But number two, there's an urgency to Paul's message. He jumps straight into this. We can learn from his urgency here the important message that follows. Imagine Paul returning from his missionary journey after traveling over hills, over mountains, through valleys, over sea, through smooth terrain and rough terrain, and he finally gets home and he says, it is all worth it. And he's filled with this joy because of the gospel that has been spread throughout Galatia. And the people were excited and they received the good news and it looked like growth was going to take place and not far behind him. The message comes, Paul they have abandoned the gospel already. How devastated Paul must have been. His excitement was now turned to sadness. And then there's an urgency to tell them, quit turning from the gospel because there's only one gospel, only one Christ. There's nowhere else to go. But then number three, also, Paul is writing this letter with the love of God. There's a love. See, he could have received this astonishing news, and chosen to do nothing about it. To wash his hands and say, you know what, Galatians, this is going to be your deal. I'll be just fine. I'm going to continue on with my own life. How many times have we fallen prey to that mindset? When we see someone who's struggling, who's not receiving the gospel, and you say, well, you know what, it's just a lost cause. I'm just going to wash my hands of it. I'm going to walk away. But no, he doesn't view it as a lost cause. He comes after them. 
Proverbs 27, 5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. He's not afraid to offend them. He's telling them the truth, what they need to hear. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a loving rebuke meant to confront the false teaching of the Judaizers who were teaching that a right standing with God, otherwise known as justification, could be attained by upholding the Mosaic law. But Paul reminded the young church that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through the Mosaic law. This was not a slow fade for the churches in Galatia. This was a rapid decline, a falling away. So we read this, quickly deserting him. It's a rapid transferring of one's allegiance. The Judaizers have moved in and are filling their minds with law-abiding, works-based doctrine. Their minds should have been filled with Christ, but they are quickly becoming of another mind altogether, void of the grace of God and focused on self-righteous works. So they've turned from Christ and now it's back on self. Notice this word, deserting. It is in the present indicative. It is in the act of. These churches are in the act of deserting him who called them. And the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel. So as he's writing to them, he can't pin this letter fast enough and get it to them quick enough. And we see the providence of God as he allows this letter to get to Galatia, to be received by them, to be passed among them, as they're in the act, the very act of deserting him. Paul taught a divine achievement. It was Christ who achieved righteousness for us. The Judaizers were teaching a human achievement, that if you want to maintain salvation if you want to gain favor with God, if you want to be in right standing, if you want to feel better, then it's your human achievement. It's your self-esteem. It's your work. You have to continue on with your work. That's how this lasts. That's how it maintains its sufficiency. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you have a hard time relying on divine achievement of what Christ has done for you, and you are trying desperately in this human achievement. We say things like, you know what, I don't feel like a Christian today. Why don't I feel like a Christian today? What is wrong with me? Am I no longer a Christian? Newsflash, there will be days when you do not feel like a Christian. Maybe that day is today. Maybe you rolled out of bed, and then you're saying, I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like being nice to people. I don't even like people today. <laughs> but we do not obey. We do not follow. We do not trust because we feel like it. Because it's not based on human achievement. We do all of these things because of what Christ has achieved for us. Even when you don't feel like opening up your Bible, but you say to yourself, Christ has achieved righteousness for me, meaning I can open the Bible and I can glean from God's Word through the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't feel like it, but I'm going to open the Bible today. In personal testimony, there's never been a time when I've opened up the Bible and I've read and I've put it back down and said, you know what? 
that was a colossal waste of time. Never a time. We rely on Christ's righteousness. Martin Luther said this, there's no middle, middle ground between Christian righteousness and works righteousness. There's no other alternative to Christian righteousness but works righteousness. If you do not build your confidence on the work of Christ, you must build your confidence on your own work. I don't know about you, but I do not want to build my confidence on my own work. I fall short. I fail. I'm streaky. I mean, I, I have really good days. I have really good weeks. And then all of a sudden, boom, I hit a wall, man. And it's like, what happened, man? I was, I was going good at this. I was real disciplined, man. I had, a, I had a routine established. My own works fall short. But Christ is not streaky. He doesn't fall short. He doesn't hit a wall. He's conquered it all for us. When you rely on your own work, you reject the work of Christ. Paul is astonished because he knows that we can never be saved by the level of our faith. You're going, i got to have more faith so that I can be saved or so I can feel secure. No, it's your faith in Christ based on His righteousness, His good work, what He has accomplished for us. Philippians 3, 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Jesus plus something else, anything else, equals nothing. He does not need our help in order for us to be more righteous. All of our righteousness is in Jesus. He is the gospel. We turn from that, we have no gospel. There's not an alternative gospel. There's not some other way, more pleasant, that God would say, you know what, way to go, way to work hard on that. That's a good idea. Yeah, I think I'll receive that. No, there's only one gospel. It's God's gospel. One commentary says, the gospel does not tell us what we have to do to please God. Instead, it announces that God is pleased with us based solely on Christ's accomplishment in his death and resurrection, in our identification with him. We don't need Christ plus this or Christ plus that. We need Christ, period. Do you have Christ today? Are you walking in Christ Jesus? Is it Christ, period, in your life? That all of your hope, all of your trust is in him. He is the hero of the faith. Is the one who brings you to God the Father. Paul goes on to say, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. It wasn't Paul who called the Galatians to salvation. I can stand before you and preach the gospel, but I do not call you to salvation. There's only one who calls you to salvation, and that is God. And we see the effectual call here in Galatians. What do we know about the effectual call of God? that it is secure, that it is firm when he calls you and you are saved. You can trust in that because he is the one who called you. This word means to call forth, to summon, to appoint, to choose. Romans 4, 17. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. 
That word calls is the same call that we see here in Galatians chapter 1. Calling into existence the things that don't exist. This world would not exist unless God called it into existence. You would not exist unless God called you into existence. Salvation does not exist unless God calls us into salvation. That's what we see by this word called. So Paul's not upset. He's not having an ego trip here because what he preached is now being rejected. He's saying God called you. And if you're called by God, you will advance but right now you're turning. This is a warning for us. When we hear people who say they're followers of Christ and then they get outside the local church and we do not see fruit on the tree, we're to go to them. We're to say, God called you. Do you trust in that? That your salvation is in Him? Turn back to Him. There's no other gospel. It refers to the act of calling someone so that he may hear, come, and do that which is incumbent upon him. Then he uses this word grace. Paul loves the word grace. You know that Paul uses grace more than 100 times in his writings? Throughout the New Testament, we see this word repeated. And among all the other writers of the New Testament, it is only used 55 times. So Paul was truly the apostle of grace. And he's reminding them of this grace. Grace is free, but that does not mean that grace is cheap. Nothing else can take the place of God's grace, and no one else can take the place of Christ on the cross. That which is most costly has been given to the church most freely. Just because grace is free doesn't mean that it's cheap to be taken advantage of any time in our walk with Christ. So we are to remain firmly rooted in God's grace. And number two, we are to reject any teaching that distorts the works of Christ. Verse seven, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, and I'm cool with that. If you got KJV, nothing wrong with KJV. It's good. I prefer ESV. In the ESV, in verse 6, it says different gospel. Verse 7, another gospel. Traditional King James Version, it says another gospel in verse 6 and another gospel in verse 7. So what do these two words mean? In verse 6, this another or different means turning to a different gospel. A different gospel. That word, different, is heteros. May sound familiar when we use that heterosexual. Male, female. There is a difference between the two all together of another kind or different form. And then when you look in verse 7, he says another gospel. Not that there is another one. That word is alos, meaning another of the same kind. Use it in an illustration. Many of you have Fitbits. You wear your Fitbit, you like your Fitbit, have your Fitbit in different colors. What if I were to come to you and say, hey, you mind if I borrow your Fitbit this week? Got some exercising I want to do, I want to count my steps, I want to see what my heart rate is, I like to measure my calories. And you know, if I 
Occasionally, you look down for the time, I'll look down at the Fitbit. He says, sure, take the Fitbit. Just please make sure you return it. Okay, it's fine. I'll return your Fitbit. And so I take your Fitbit. I come back the next week. And in my hand, I'm holding not a Fitbit, but a stethoscope. So here you go. I brought to you a stethoscope. Now, I use this illustration so I could say the word stethoscope a lot, a lot of times. Yeah. So here you go. He said, what, what are you doing? I said, well, I wanted to return this to you. I want to, I want to give this to you, and I'm going to keep the Fitbit. I'm going to give to you the stethoscope. He said, well, why do I need a stethoscope? Well, I me mean, plug it in your ears, put it to your heart, man. Listen, you can hear your heartbeat. Fitbit can't do that. Say, but no, it's not the same thing. It's completely different. That's heteros. Fitbit and a stethoscope are two separate things all together, not even close. He says, you turn to a different gospel. You're going from a Fitbit to a stethoscope. But then this word alos would be that if I came to you, instead of bringing to you a stethoscope, I brought to you a, a knockoff version of the Fitbit called a BitFit. Hey, man, brought to you BitFit. Same color. Only thing is, it doesn't measure your steps, doesn't keep your heart rate. Forget about measuring your calories. Uh, but it keeps time. Fits snug on your wrist like the other one does. I'm going to give to you this, and I'm going to keep the Fitbit, and you can have the BitFit. So no, I don't want the BitFit. I want the Fitbit. Give it back to me. That would be another of a similar kind. It looks a little similar, but different. You get it? So he's saying, you're going to a different gospel. Altogether different. Not that there is one similar to this. There's nothing comparable. Nothing even close to this gospel. He goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This word distort, metastrepho, means to twist or pervert, to turn inside out. And Satan, we know, is the great deceiver. And many of his evil tactics are cleverly disguised as good and wholesome. It's not heavy metal music. <laughs> you look at it and go, oh, that, that sounds satanic. It looks bad. I'm going to walk away from that. Not that all heavy metal music is bad. But it can look really good. Sound very pleasant. Smooth. And that's what we see here. The Judaizers have brought this message that's very smooth, easy to digest, gets the focus back on them and away from Christ. And he works just like an angel of light, as we see in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The false doctrine that was infiltrating the local churches in Galatia did not carry a label of evil or error. It carried a presence of the gospel. Live for God and be holy. But it lacked the power of the gospel because Christ's presence was lacking in this false teaching. They were turning from the power of God to the frailty of human effort. So with a turning, we can see two prominent distortions of the gospel that are probably most prevalent among us today in the church. And those two, one, one is legalism, 
claims to be truth-based. And the second one is license or liberalism, claims to be grace-based. But both are distorted. The problem here would be more of legalism. There are other times in the Bible where liberalism, license, is addressed. Let's look at legalism. It says, I'm righteous because I go to church. I give an offering. I serve. I read my Bible. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't curse. I don't watch those rated R movies. It's only rated R because of the violence. I eat right. I work out. I live healthy. I work hard. I provide for my family. I serve in the community. I stand up for pro-life, for racial reconciliation, and moral issues. A lot of that is good, but your salvation is not based on that. From your salvation come these good things. It's not how you maintain your salvation. It's not how you achieve salvation. It's legalism. But then there's also license. Because I'm forgiven by grace, I don't have to go to church. I don't have to give an offering. I don't have to serve. I don't have to read my Bible. I have grace. I can do whatever I want. I can slander others. I can get drunk. I can look at pornography. I can act however I want to because I have grace. I can eat whatever I want. I can neglect working out. I can be lazy. I can be selfish, be irresponsible, be a sorry spouse, do what I want. I don't have to stand up for anything. I'll just tolerate whatever. That's liberalism. People say, I have grace, I have salvation, so now it's my life to live. Both are distorted. As John MacArthur says, Paul would not tolerate one drop of legalism intermixed with God's pure grace. To turn away from any part of grace of Christ is to turn away from the power of God to that of human effort. So we see that we are to remain firmly rooted in God's grace, to reject any teaching that distorts the works of Christ. And then number three, we are to regard the divinely inspired word above all other words. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul uses a form of exaggeration here. Saying, you know, if it were me to come back to you and say, hey, that gospel that I preached to you the first time, forget about it. I'm going to give you another gospel. He said, if I would ever do that, know that I'm wrong. Because the words that I gave to you were the words of Christ, not the words of Paul. If I give you anything different, it's the words of Paul or the words of someone else, but it's not the words of Christ. But even if an angel were to come to you, an angel saying he's from God and he gives you a different message than the word that I gave to you, it's false, man. Don't buy it. Because it's not the words of Christ. And he repeats this statement two times. A gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This word accursed is anathema. 
means to be cut off or to be given over to. Given over to or devoted to divine condemnation. God says, you preach a different gospel. You receive a different gospel. You reject my son. I give you over to divine condemnation. Scary position to be in. God does not play with his word. He does not enjoy when people try to help him out with his word. If I were to come to you and say, hey, um, the Bible's good, but it needs some updating. It needs to be more relevant for today. It kind of needs to speak to us today because we're a little different than they were in the first century. That's helping God. God doesn't need our help. The Bible is sufficient for today as it's always been. For us to think that it's irrelevant and that we need to help it puts the work of salvation back on us. Which leads me to ask the question to myself and to all of us, who do we think we are when we try to help God with his word? What have we accomplished what do we know about life without God's word? What do we know about living on this earth without God's word? What do we know about the church without God's word? What do we know about salvation apart from God's word? It is what God says. Look, I know that the Bible can be awfully intimidating especially when you first open it up to read and you're not familiar with it. And you can ask questions like, am I ever going to know where all the books of the Bible are? I mean, some of you today, even if we gave you the page number, you, you probably maybe flipped through your Bible and you thought, you know what, I'm giving up. I don't find Galatians, you know what? I'm just going to act like I found it. Just open up to a spot. Land here safely. I've done that before. Why? because I was caring about what other people around me thought, that I didn't know the Bible. Look, we don't naturally know the Bible. We don't naturally get the Bible. So we open up the Word again and again and again. But I'm not going to give you advice to say that, you know what? If you're having struggling, if you're struggling reading your Bible, just try opening it once a week. Give it a go. See how it goes. Get back to me. No, I'm going to tell you, read your Bible daily. I don't think that's legalism to encourage people to read their Bibles daily. Because how are you going to know God's will apart from his word? And if you're discouraged, go back to it. I didn't know where all the books of the Bible were. I didn't know how to find them. But as I kept going back again and again and again, and I look back 20 years after following Christ, I go, wow, there's so much that I've learned and there's so much that I have left to learn. So if you're discouraged right now, the thing to do is not to forsake the Bible. It's to go back to the Bible. Keep reading. And you're struggling with something, keep struggling with it. Take notes. Go to somebody that you can talk with about the Bible. Come talk with me about the Bible or one person on our staff or your, your community group leader. 
Let's talk about the word, but not neglect the word. He says, you know what, if you just go contrary to the gospel, it's anathema. You're cut off. Paul writes in big letters. He says at the end of this letter, I'll write to you in big letters. So we can't see this letter actually in 3D as it was to see the big letters. But you know what? We can hear his statement twice over here. He's being serious. It's dangerous to neglect God's word. I'm going to say this and I'm going to read a quote. If you're struggling in your marriage, and you know the reason you're struggling in your marriage is because you're neglecting God's word, because God's word's telling you to do what you ought to do in marriage, but you're different. You've made yourself different. You've given yourself excuses. Don't neglect God's word. Hear God's word, and may your marriage be healed. That's why when we have this marriage conference coming up, I'm just going to give a little plug here. Um, the focus of it is God's word. You're not going to receive any other teaching apart from God's word. It's God's word first. That's where all the teaching for that marriage conference is coming from. And you go, oh, I would think there's a, a next great book out there that would tell us how to have a great marriage. The Bible will lead you to have a great marriage. As it will lead you to have a great life according to God's will for his glory. But what happens far too often, last time we talked about our theology bracelets that we have, we even neglect those at times. We neglect Scripture, and we go to famous sayings, aphorisms. Listen to this. 82% of Americans and a majority of evangelicals believe that Benjamin Franklin's aphorism, God helps those who help themselves, is a biblical quotation. 82%. Now, silently, you may be sitting there going, is that, that is in the Bible, is it not, right? God helps those who help themselves. A majority believe that all people pray to the same God or spirit, no matter what name they use for that spiritual being. And that if a person is generally good or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven. A majority. And maybe you're here today thinking, yes, that's true, that's true, those things are true. Because we listen to people that we trust, that are in leadership. In fact, can you guess which president said this? I believe that all the world, whether they be Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, prays to the same God. That's what I believe. What president said that? Well, none other than George W. Bush. In an interview with a Muslim, dealing with Islamic hostilities. Now, I know probably what you were thinking on that, where you wanted to go with that, but that is a direct quote. It's all around us. When we neglect the Bible to ease hostilities, to have peace, to have comfort, to not offend, Do you believe that all people go to heaven and that no one goes to hell? Do you believe that God only helps those who help themselves? Do you believe those things? Do you believe that Jesus is just only one way to heaven? That 
Somewhere in history, we crossed the line where we said, you know what, it's, it's not right just to believe that Jesus is the only way. There are multiple ways to heaven. Do you really believe that today? You may truly believe that today, but none of those things are biblical. God's Word points us to Christ. And the only way that you can have salvation and a right standing before God is through Christ Jesus. To rely fully on His grace, His goodness. If you do not have salvation today, if you're not looking to Jesus Christ today, I implore you, look to Christ. Be saved. Trust in His good work. He's already done it. He did it on the cross. He's already done the works. He lived it out on this earth. He went to the cross to die for sin. Trust in Him that He died for your sin and will set you free so that you can be a child of God. Because maybe you believe right now that everyone's a child of God because you've heard that statement over and over again. But the truth is, in what we see in the Bible, everyone is not a child of God. Only those who are in Christ Jesus. So today, look to Jesus. Repent of your sins. Just go to Him and say, I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. Forgive me of my sin. I trust in Jesus Christ. Make the good confession today. Where you're seated, or I'll be standing right up here at front. We'll have some pastors up here at front. Come talk to us. Say, I want to follow Jesus. Come talk to us. Make the good confession today. Follow Christ. Maybe check that off in the connection card. I want to know more about following Christ. We'd love to follow up with you. And if you did think one of those things and you think, oh, what are they going to think of me if I admit to that? Please admit it. There's so many things that we believe that aren't according to the Word of God. That's why we come to the Bible so that those things may be exposed, may be brought to the surface to be skimmed off by God's holy hand. So I remind you, as we see that this is not Paul's gospel, he did not receive it from any man, this is God's gospel. And Christ is at the center of the gospel. You reject Christ, you reject God. You reject Christ, you reject the gospel. There's only one gospel. Next week, we will continue on with one gospel, but I challenge you, church, that as you've heard these words today, God's working in your heart. If there's been something that's been brought to the surface, will you submit it to him? I am so appreciative of our times of confession. As a church together, that may make you feel uncomfortable. It's okay. We need to confess our sins. And we need to, in a room of this size, be able to bow our heads and confess before the Lord that we sin, that we struggle. So I'm thankful that we've had that time, but if there's been more that's been brought to the surface, will you submit that to the Lord? Maybe you want to come pray with someone. Grab someone's hand and say, let's go pray together. Or, or where you're seated, let's pray together. But as we depart from here today, may we go forth in full confidence that there's only one gospel and that there is no compromise in that gospel. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for our time together. Now, Lord, as we continue to sing, may our hearts be filled with joy. Lord, may we remain firmly rooted in your grace. May we be ready to reject any teaching that distorts the works of Christ. And may we regard your divinely inspired word above all other words. 
Father, I specifically pray for the church that if we being here today have been a people that have neglected your word this week, may we cling to your word. May we read your word this week. May we learn from your word. And through your word, may we continue to walk in your will. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.